Welcome to the Better Brand Story Podcast. Hope you are having a fabulous day. This podcast is all about helping brands learn how to tell a better brand story. Let's dive in. Welcome to today's episode of Better Brand Story. I've got Michelle Chester. She's a brand strategist, and we're going to dive into her story in a little bit. But uh, today, it's it's going to be awesome. So Michelle, for those who don't know you, tell us a little bit about yourself, your, a little bit of your background who are you? Absolutely. Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Michelle Chester. I use she and her pronouns, and I'm a brand strategy lead at General Mills. So I help our brands um, solve problems and build their businesses and also just really build brand equity because it doesn't have to be one or the other. Um, I've spent my entire career in integrated marketing and brand strategy. I'm a mom to two kids. I'm really focused on allyship and destigmatizing mental health, and I'm excited to be here. I'm chatty, Travis. So I hope you're ready. <laughs> I'm excited. It's going to be a good one. <laughs> what do you do as a brand strategy lead? Yes. So I help our teams as a consultant and a coach, kind of an internal expert on strategy, get really clear on the choices they have to make to build the brand and drive sales. So I think a lot of the times in marketing, it's this false choice setup. Like you have to choose to drive sales or build brand equity. And it's really a false choice. Like you can do both at once. It just takes a, a, a really clear set of choices that you're making um, to do different levers and tactics that achieve both of those things. So I really get clear with our teams. I coach them a lot on not boiling the ocean, like making very clear choices on how they want to grow their business. Do they want to grow household penetration or frequency, like the number of purchase, purchases a consumer makes in a year? Do they want to um, launch a new sub-brand and have, it have a really high awareness number in the first year? Or do they want to launch new flavors of an existing brand? And what does that do? So I'm always coaching the teams to make really clear choices for how they want to grow their business. And then also my biggest part of my job is to make sure that those choices they're making either solve a problem for the consumer or just driver, deliver joy. So that's the construct we use at General Mills. We have to either solve problems or deliver joy. And um, there are a lot of different ways to do that. I like to use um, a spectrum that I call um, from bacon to bug spray, which sounds really wild. But if you think about it, bug spray very clearly solves a problem. Like people don't have a beautiful curated aesthetic bookshelf of bug spray at home. Like they buy it because there is a, a bee's nest on their front porch. Right. So that is a very clear, like problem solving mission. Where is bacon delicious if you eat meat and, um, bacon or even like a really fun flavored coffee drink is purchased to deliver a jolt of joy or umame or caffeine. Like it's very much a pleasure or a joy purchase. Um, so there's very different ways to connect with consumers and it's usually in one of those two spectrums. So I coach teams to get really clear on what they're delivering and what they want to accomplish. Mm. And so I'm guessing then the messaging changes based on. Yes. Yes. It changes dramatically because with the problem solving benefit of the brand or the product, we have to really focus on how the solution is delivered, what it will give you. Will it give you peace of mind? Will it reduce the likelihood that you're going to get stung by a bee on your arm when you're outside drinking coffee on your deck, like getting really clear about the problem that it's solving and what it will be like after the problem is solved. Whereas when you're delivering joy, it's, it's typically like we're aiming for a straight shot of dopamine. Like we just want to light people's eyes up and um, make sure that we leave them better than we found them. A lot of times joy purchases aren't planned. So that's another thing I always like to remind folks that, um, I've heard some cynics say that marketing's just out to sell you stuff you don't need. 
And, you know, that's one thought, but I would argue that, uh, consumption is free will. Like we decide what we buy and when we want to buy it. And that, um, instead of forcing you to buy stuff you don't need, if we're delivering joy, it's really about intersecting that moment when your mind's open and you're just saying, you know what? I would like bacon on my burger tonight. Or you know what? There's a new coffee drink out and I'd like to try it because it makes me feel like it's really fall or really the holiday season. So it's less about forcing people to buy stuff they don't need and more about um, intersecting them when their mind's open and they could use just a little shot of joy. Hmm. And then I'm guessing that changes to them based on what it is. So like if you're selling that need, you know, solving that pain mm-hmm. point, right? It's so mm-hmm. like a higher ticket item where you're planning it out further in advance. It's more strategic, like a company, big B2B purchase. Yes, absolutely. going to have a very different because problem solving tactic versus talking about the joy of this. Absolutely. So I'm so glad you brought that up. It's a really good point. I've worked on a lot of B2C brands in my career, but I've also had a fair amount of B2B clients when I was agency side. And guess what we're delivering for B2B clients? It's very, very clearly in the problem solving camp. It's we're helping them get clear on what service or product they offer to solve problems for their clients. So B2B and B2C, like they're necessary terms, but I always say it's P2P. It's like people to people. Everybody's got a heartbeat and a pulse and they're looking to solve their own personal problem or their business's problems or in their personal life or maybe in their business life, like open to that shot of joy, right? Um, But with B2B, it's very often solving problem base. So for example, um, if I were an accountant and I, my client base, like my expertise was in small businesses, 25 employees and under or freelancers, I wouldn't say, I believe in financial peace of mind. Like that's a very higher order, top of the Maslow's hierarchy state. And we all want to get there, but you're going to need more than your accountant to get that. I'm thinking you're going to need to meditate and take care of your health and eat good foods and all the, you know, annoying, but necessary things your doctor tells you to do. So instead of an accountant saying, I believe in peace of mind financially, in theory, they would say, hey, are you new to freelance? Because I can help you figure out the top 20 expenses you may be missing on your tax return so you can max out your deduction, which is more money to you. Like a very clear, I can help you with deductions. You get more um, money in your pocket at the end of the day. So really focusing on what the need state is and what, how exactly the, um, product or service plugs into that. So a lot of times I coach my teams on how a brand benefit should be, or a service benefit or a product benefit should be a plug into a wall. Like it's a very, very rational fix. If we're solving problems, it's a, it's a one, it's a immediate plug in to the problem. Um, so thinking about what that means, financial well-being is outstanding. I wish it for everyone, right? Money is a really emotional and loaded topic, but in this case, the accountant is not going to be like the Dalai Lama meditation coach of money. They're one partner along the way to help a freelancer say, you know what? I've got my act together. I know how to file my taxes. I've got a great CPA. I know how I can keep a little bit more money in my pocket. So that's one way we can look at what, how B2B works a little bit differently than B2C. It seems like a lot of times when people talk about brand and branding, mm-hmm. they're always in the bringing joy, right? It seems yes. like all oh, like you go to any presentation, they're talking about, oh, you need, this is your brand. And they're like, it's more than just your logo. It's about how you people feel about you mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And then sales is always more of like, you're solving this problem, this problem, problem, problem. And it's like, well, what is there a middle ground? <laughs> 
I think there is a middle ground as always. One of my models for my personal and professional life, I say this to myself and to my colleagues, is that there are very few solutions found at the extremes, right? Like this applies to good habits that you have, business practices. So if we have a company that the foundation of how they build the brand is sales, sales without brand building is not resilient. So if we just rely on sales, and there's a lot of revenue coming in, but then the world ends like it has in the last three years, and COVID hits, and the supply chain goes bonkers, and all of a sudden there are multiple ingredient or microchip or plastic shortages, like name the industry and it's been disrupted, then does that brand that's sold at, call it Target or hometown favorite, does that brand lose all of their shelf space because they have no supply chain resiliency? Well, they might. But if they have a really compelling brand and they're able to say, our net promoter score is 85, like 8.5 people out of 10 would recommend this to their friends. Or they say, you know, our loyalty figures for this program that we've sold you, people come back four years in a row. So if you take us off your shelf now, or if you stop carrying us or slotting us, you're going to miss out on three more years of revenue. Like you have to have both pieces to drive and build a great brand because you have to have some resiliency in what the offering is if the sales side goes flat, and then you have to be able to fund the brand building with the revenue you're bringing in from sales. So it's, it's really two sides of the coin and it falls flat without a very core partnership between the two. I work with our sales teams every once in a while at General Mills. I'm more, I'm more clearly in the branding camp, but I have so much respect for our sales team and the way that they hustle and work with our customers. So at General Mills, we're um, such a big company that we call consumers, the folks that actually eat the food, right? And customers are the folks that carry the food for us. So we have some D2C offerings, but most of the time we go through our big, big retailers like Target and Walmart, et cetera. So, um, in that case, we have to have a very clear offering to sell into Target, for example, through sales. And then we have to, we tell our customers, any retailer that has products to sell at Target, for example, tells Target and the Target buyers, hey, we're launching this new product and we're supporting it so that people are actually going to come in and buy it from you. Because it's a false, it's a false promise if you say we're launching this new product and we're just going to rely on organic media and like cross our fingers the right person shares it on TikTok. Like that is not a marketing strategy, that is not brand building. But if we say we're launching this new product, we're putting a bunch of paid, earned, and owned media behind it, and then we also want to do sampling in your stores, like that becomes a compelling, a compelling offering. And by the way, the media, the own, you know, the PR the jazzy, beautiful broadcast campaign, the fantastic social media campaign is not run by sales. That's run by the brand and marketing team. So they really have to work with each other or one falls flat. Can you dive a little bit into how does the branding change at all? Or mm. does your messaging change between those two? Yeah, that's a good question. So the consumer, I'm making sure I'm getting this right. The consumer, the person who eats the old El Paso tortillas, um, our messaging to them is really focused in the consumer problem, right? Like, are, is there a problem that they're having with their current choice of tortilla or is there a, a shot of joy we could provide, right? The, for the customer, when we sell into a retailer, it's, it's a two-part message. It is, this is the problem we're solving and why people are going to come in and buy it. So you'll get good turns on shelf. And then there are a lot of the nuts and bolts of, 
um, how sales teams play their game and a good game. It's not a bad game, but how they run their business in terms of saying, this is the productivity. This is how we're going to keep it in stock. This is when we expect sales to peak. So maybe you should adjust your ordering cadence for that period of time. Like Cinco de Mayo is coming. So maybe you order a few more tortillas in late April, like that type of consultation. So the messaging does change because we're either talking to a consumer feeding their family on Taco Tuesday or Taco Thursday um, or tacos any day of the week. We're either talking to the consumer or we're talking to the buyer and like, they just have very different goals, but the buyer needs to see both because they need to see how it's going to support their business and why their consumer that they know so well in the category should care. So it's really, the buyer gets both messages. The the consumer gets one. Um, but getting to that point with a successful meeting to sell a new product is, um, a huge joint effort. It cannot be done even just with sales and marketing. There are lots of folks, um, on my teams that dive in there. Hmm. Is that helpful? Yeah. Okay. Cause I, I think a lot of people will confuse the two or the, they put the two together. Like, oh, like sales the, and marketing. Con, well, no, like the, the consumer and the customer, oh, they're yeah. like, well, they're the same person. And you're like, no, they're not. Oftentimes, you know, like the, the parent might be the, the customer, right? Yes. And then the kid is a consumer. Yes. And like, sometimes the consumer is a parent. And the person eating the product is a newborn baby, like baby formula or General Mills has a fantastic and big um, pet food division. We own and operate Blue Buffalo. So like in that case, we they're not human eaters. They are pet parents, as we call them, buying for their pets. And Blue Buffalo um, is such a smart move for General Mills to move into pet food because... Um, you know, pet ownership is just booming in the U.S. and was growing, I believe, even before COVID. But like all the COVID puppies come to General Mills, we'll feed you up real nice. So, yeah, it's not it's not even always the person scanning at the checkout or running their credit card through Instacart. It's often um, other folks. And then that involves a even more fun exercise for a strategist to think about, OK, who is the one making the list and buying the product and how do we speak to them? even though their teenager is eating cinnamon toast crunch. Like the teenager is likely not at the store buying the or placing the Instacart order, right? But it's the parent who's buying on behalf of the teen. So then it becomes an even more interesting exercise from my standpoint to think about how do we go through the parent and appeal to them when the person that we really want to be requesting the product and saying, mom or dad, can you buy this? Or mom and mom or dad and dad, it's a teenager. And we're not speaking directly to them necessarily. What are some ways that you've seen that's been successful with mm-hmm, that? Mm-hmm. We are really dialed in and have our finger on the pulse of pop culture at General Mills because we have to know what the up and coming gaming platforms are. We have to know how people are, how teens or tweens are consuming our products. And then we're really, I think I'm really proud to work at General Mills for dozens of reasons, but one of them is that we are very clear on speaking to the parents because we cannot and should not market directly to teens, right? They are still kids. So we're, we do a really good job of making sure that we're aware of what's going to build resonance with the teen. So if they run across our comms or they're a part of the Twitch world or um, playing on interactive gaming platforms, like they might they might be aware of some of our work because of the way we've integrated into games, but we're not pushing into them and saying, please buy CTC, please buy Cinnamon Toast Crunch. We're more saying, oh, look, the Cinemoji showed up. That's fun. They're entertaining. But there's, it's not a buy now message. That's reserved for their parents. It's more, 
um, engage with us. Aren't we fun and interesting? So when the parent says, Hey, what would you like for breakfast this week? I'm going on a grocery run. The kid says, Ooh, I'd really like some cinnamon toast crunch. So it's, it's a really, um, very purposeful, very ethical, like indirect model of influence. And, um, my colleagues who work in the morning foods division, which is who, you know, runs our cereal businesses are so hip. They have to know about all the coolest stuff coming up in media. Um, I'm more focused on parents around the dinner table and other occasions, but it's really fun to learn from them in terms of, um, what's going on in the teen and tween world, because they have to be on top of it. Like we have to know how to sell Totinos to kids who are playing video games after school. So they have to be, they have to be real hip and cool. So that's some of the ways we do that. Is that helpful? Yeah. Cool. As a brand strategist, when it comes to your goals, how do you kind of go about setting or clarifying your goals? Mm -hmm. This is such a good question because there are so many different ways to set goals and my, really my career and definitely my current job is focused on saying, what are the goals for the business and what are the goals for the brand and where do they intersect? So I spend a lot of my time at that intersection and making it clear with all of the brilliant people that I work with that those goals are not at odds with each other. Like I said earlier, like it's not a false choice. It's not drive sales or build the brand, pick one. We can and have to do both to be a, to have a brand that's resilient with a really long lifespan. So goal setting really comes down to getting clear on what those two goals are. And then focusing on how we activate with resources, budgets, logos, brand guidelines, packaging, media, like all of the levers we have. How do we activate in a way that achieves both? And if not 100% of both, like enough of both to say we had some success and we learned what to do next time. So it's a constant iter iterative process in marketing. Um, but that's how I really coach my teams to set goals. Like we have to think about the business and the brand so that both are resilient and we have to activate in a way that serves both because if we serve just one, we start to get off balance. The building the brand is the long-term yes. ROI. Yes, absolutely. And the building the business sales is the immediate, like, um, you know, during the infomercial, mm -hmm. you at the oh end of gosh. the 30 minute infomercial, Bye they know now. how yeah. many sales they've been, right? <laughs> yes. And versus like you ran some branding campaign mm -hmm. and you might not know like what's the longest you run? Like how do, far do you track from if you're running some sort of campaign? Mm -hmm. How do you know your numbers and how do you track? We have entire teams at General Mills that are dedicated to this and I am not on them. So I can share a little bit of what their goals are, but there are some incredibly sophisticated proprietary methods that we use to say, is what we're doing working? And what does working mean? And what are what were our goals? And how do we benchmark against the rest of the industry? So we have some really amazing work at General Mills that gauges marketing effectiveness. I will say that when we think about campaign running a campaign for a long time, a long time can mean six months and a long time can mean 10 years. So it really varies based on what your context frame is. Any good marketer, I believe, needs to have needs to have patience and be really clear about campaign burnout. So I'll unpack those two things. Patience. I'm working on some really cool stuff at General Mills right now that I want to talk about, but I can't. So I won't because I really like my job. But I've been working on some of these things for a year and a half, and they're not going to come to market for another six to 12 months. So when they come to market, 
it's going to feel like old news to me and my entire team. Cause like we've been working on that for so long, the consumer just saw it. So we have to be really patient and say, as much as we want to have a report on this media's effectiveness or this new campaign or this new product, we have to give it six months before we even take an initial read. Cause consumers have to see and be exposed to something many, many times before they say, Oh, in research, if they're asked, Oh, have you seen this? Um, have you seen this Pillsbury broadcast spot where they talk about being a chef in the kitchen with your kids? You're probably going to need to see that more than once to be able to say, yes, I do remember seeing that. And here's how it made me feel, you know? So even it's like quality data in quality data out. So we have to expose consumers more than once to campaign work, even though we've watched that broadcast spot probably 50 times internally, because we've been selling it to people and reviewing it with our video editor. Like we have to be patient with creative. We have to let consumers see it for a long time before we gauge the effectiveness. On the other side of that spectrum, because there are no solutions at either end of the spectrum, on the other side of that is campaign burnout. So like, I firmly believe the Got Milk campaign went about four to five years too long. I mean, it was just, and it, it was, that is an iconic advertising effort. So like kudos to the team behind that. It was a hell of an effort. But at some point, if a consumer hears your message too many times, they will proactively tune it out, like either not listen, change a channel, skip a Spotify ad, you know? So there's, there definitely gets to a point where we call that creative or campaign burnout. Um, it's an industry term that is, is really meant to say like, we need to either change up how we're buying media. Like, do we age up a generation or down? We need to open up targeting from just people who identify as female to people of all genders and see if that gets us a fresh take or look on this. Or we need to say, do we need some new cuts or shots or scripts of the existing campaign? Because the creative platform's really good and it's just this execution that's burnt out. Or team, we need to show up differently to achieve different business and brand goals. So we need a new campaign. So those are all options along the way. But my encouragement to my teams is always, hey, the consumer just started seeing this. So let's give it a little time to build some legs. And then um, we rarely get to the point of burnout because we want to do the next cool thing. Mm. We're marketers. We want to make beautiful, creative things all the time. So, yeah. Do you see like there's a lot of retro like throwback to stuff like that mm -hmm. where like the Got Milk campaign was overdone for a while. Let's give it like a decade. But now people are going to remember Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, right? And now it's coming back and like now there's a whole new series and content. So, so when do you know to bring it back or how do you kind of analyze, how do you look at a situation and say, should, is now the good time or not? Is now the time for nostalgia is what I just heard. Okay. Um, that starts with having a finger on the pulse of your consumer. Like what do they care about? What's going to be a shot of joy for them. If you bring something back when it was at its heyday at its height, was it universally loved and why? Like thinking about what the equity was back when it was in its first run of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I love this example so much as a child of the eighties. Um, and is there something similar about what's going on in culture or that consumer's mindset now that might have it strike a chord or are they desperate for a shot of childhood nostalgia joy? Cause that can also be it. So here's an example. I didn't work on this team, but I'll tell you what I ate a lot of the product. General Mills brought back Dunkaroos last year and it was a massive hit. And the team did an outstanding job of dialing into the nostalgia of the product and then playing it out over 
limited time only apparel launches over integration into a bunch of other pop cultural moments. They um, are working on getting it in unexpected places. So whenever a craving strikes and you see dunk, you're like, it's time to dunk. I need a, I need a pack of Dunkaroos, right? <laughs> like they've, they um, realize that a lot of folks that ate Dunkaroos as kids are now baking in their kitchen with their kids. So Betty Crocker and Dunkaroos partnered internally, and now you can buy Dunkaroos frosting. Like, the frosting's the best part. Like, the graham crackers are fine, but, like, you've had Dunkaroos, right, Travis? I think so. Oh, my God, it's the frosting. <laughs> the teal package with the graham crackers and the frosting. For me, it's all about the frosting. And they partner with Betty Crocker, who sells a lot of frosting, and they put a canister of Dunkaroos frosting in a canister branded Betty Crocker. The way that thing sold was unbelievable. So it's really about... Um, bringing back that shot of joy in a time and moment where in a channel where it's going to be relevant. So Dunkaroos is a huge success. Um, and I think that is not solving a problem, Travis. Like nobody woke up and said, you know what I need? I need a 1992 snack that used to be in my lunchbox. Like no one actually wakes up and says that is something that I need today. But when they see it and it's activated in a way that makes them feel like they're 10 years old again, it's an easy grab. It's a perfect impulse buy because we're delivering joy, right? So it's, it's either a fix or fun. It's solving a problem or delivering joy. And that was a huge, huge hit of fun for a consumer. So in that case, <clears throat> when we relaunched Dunk, we didn't say, you know, who wants this is baby boomers. We got to target the parents, the, the parents who bought it back in the nineties. We really thought carefully about the kids that didn't purchase it in the nineties, but ate it who, by the way, have their own income now. So now they can purchase it. And they likely didn't purchase it for themselves, right? I, I'm sorry, for their kids. They bought mm -hmm. it for themselves. Like this is a eat in the pickup line before you pick up your kid's snack. And maybe you'll share some with your kids. But like, I bought Dunk for me. Dunkaroos are delicious. So because it was from my childhood. So it's also understanding like we're not talking to the parents that bought it back then for nostalgia. We're talking to the kids that ate it that are now... <laughs> adults, you know, with their own income. So that I think nostalgia is a great way to play into product. Mm. Yeah. That's a good example of showing how sometimes the consumer became the customer. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. That's a great takeaway. Why is goal setting important to storytelling? Goal setting is really important to storytelling because we are in an attention economy, right? Like an app loads slow and I get cranky. And like, I'm not proud to say that, but it is what it is, right? I have a really high bar for apps. Um, and, and no one's time is available to waste. Like attention spans are getting shorter. Launching long form video on TikTok was like an industry shakeup because it was meant to project short-term video for short-term attention spans. So goal setting is important to storytelling because we have to be really clear about why people are going to watch. And I would argue would watch or listen, right? So I would argue that when using someone's um, precious time and speaking to them, we have to make the problem, the solution to the problem or the source of the joy really clear early on. And we have to, and it's not baiting the message. It's not like clickbait here. This will bring you a ton of joy or make you super happy. Or you'll never believe how clean the solution is. Like, cause that's an infomercial and there's a time and a place for that. Right. But it's more about, um, being emotionally engaging and making it really clear what you have to offer in a way that is distinct to your brand. 
So I like to talk about Uber and Lyft when I use this example. So Uber and Lyft have extremely similar like mission statements, reimagining the world of transportation. Okay, fair. Like that's the business you're in. I appreciate the, I appreciate the ambition in reimagining, right? But then you look at, and they, they're both ride sharing services. They both have certain arms of like, we'll help get people to the polls. We'll help people get to medical appointments that they wouldn't be able to. So they both have some, some force for good initiatives and some efforts, but they're a ride sharing company at their core, arguably each other's biggest competitor, right? But when you look at the brands and how they deliver their stories and their brand equity and what they're about, which we call their ethos, completely different in my mind. Uber is much more clinical, direct. They're like a tech company that happens to work in transportation, you know, like that kind of energy. Whereas Lyft um, launched with bright pink furry mustaches and has maintained some of that quirk as they've gone along the way. So they, they take themselves seriously when they need to, like no, nothing's more serious than an SEC filing. So like, you know, they, they have a backbone of how they run their business, but Lyft is a much more playful, um, I would argue more values-based company and Uber kind of broke things to get to the scale they're at, right? Like Uber has had repeated significant PR crises. They're kind of their own worst enemy in some ways. And they're climbing out of that. Like I totally respect the new leadership that's come in to have a turnaround effort, but Lyft didn't need a turnaround effort because they just had different values and operated in different ways. So Uber and Lyft are really similar at the problem they're solving, but they deliver the solution in very different ways. Um, and that I think is a beautiful example of why storytelling is really important because they likely had different goals that they set out when they went to tell their company's story. Hey guys, this episode was going to be a little bit too long to do it all in one. So we broke it up into two tune back in for the second episode. It's live right now.